Amen. Take your copy of God's Word and turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. Now I know for some of you, this is going to be just a little bit disturbing this morning because you just had to move your bookmark or Bible mark, right? You have been settling in to 2 Samuel. You thought that's where we were going. We've been talking about David over the last several weeks, and you had it already set. You pro- some of you, you, look, you probably already saw the worship bulletin, and you saw that we were going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, and all you did is just sit and shake your head this morning because you're going to have to move it, and you know you're going to have to move it back at some point. What in the world would we do moving to the gospel of Matthew. I mean, we've been talking about David. David, this is a sermon series on David. And yet, as I've already pointed out over the last few weeks, we understand that the story of David, and really, let me say this, the story of every Old Testament hero, I would even say the story of every New Testament hero, that every story points to the story of the ultimate hero. And that is Jesus Christ. The characters of the scripture that are given to us, we are reminded that they play a role in the redemptive story, but they are not in themselves the redeemers. Jesus Christ alone is the redeemer. He is, as we're going to see this morning, he is the son of David. And because of that, it makes all the difference in our world. Because of that, we are changed people. Because he is the son of David, we are able to come and worship here this morning and sing praises to him and exalt his name. And I want to share it with you. I want you to see it today as we get into God's word, as we study together. Matthew chapter 21. It gives us this scene, the Palm Sunday scene. As Jesus is making his pilgrimage into Jerusalem, as the Passover itself is almost there. Jesus comes, and this is according to what Matthew teaches us, what he says to us, beginning in verse 1. He says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them, bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had come into Jerusalem, the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. 
The scripture teaches us and shows us that Jesus of Nazareth, the prophet from Galilee himself, that he is the Messiah. And that is what we see today as we look at this passage that Matthew is presenting to us the idea that Jesus is the Messiah. So let's camp out a little bit on that today. And then let's talk a little bit about what kind of expectations they had of the Messiah Himself. The scripture says that here's Jesus entering into Jerusalem. He's making this pilgrimage. Can you imagine, by the way, having to make such a pilgrimage to church every Sunday or so? I mean, according to what the scripture teaches us, he had come in the day from like Jericho. It had been like 18 miles. Is that settling in on some of you? He had come up to Jerusalem, and obviously he didn't have any automobile he didn't have even any kind of public transportation didn't he had he had walked he had come up to jericho or right outside he was at around bethany and he was preparing to go in for this great feast this great festival here's jesus doing that so he he comes and he says to his disciples he says hey i want you to go over and there's there's going to be a donkey there's going to be a colt i want you to bring I want you to bring that colt back, and we're going to use it. I'm going to go into Jerusalem on that colt. It's amazing to think about how here's Jesus. He's already prepared. Obviously, maybe he's talked to somebody. They know that he's coming. It's been prepared for him. He's going to go into Jerusalem. And the scripture, Matthew in particular, shows us that through this act of entry into Jerusalem, that Jesus demonstrates his messiahship. I say to you that this fits into the narrative of David because we're told in the Old Testament that the people were looking forward to a Davidic king, right? A few weeks ago, we talked about 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. In that passage, David had been told no, that he could not build the temple. But Nathan had revealed the word of God to him, and Nathan had said that one of these days, there's going to be one who will sit on the throne and that throne will be eternal. That throne will be enduring. So the people of, of Israel had heard that word and they were expecting a king. And they were expecting, especially during this type of season, God to demonstrate his king. Passover had a fervency about it, an expectation about it, that God would speak to his people, that God would show his people who this king would be. So everything was ripe. It was ready for the revelation of David's son. And as Jesus walked into Jerusalem, or as he rode into Jerusalem, that is, it demonstrated his messiahship. The scripture itself, notice this in verse 4. Matthew tells us that all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. In other words, Matthew says that the scripture itself was fulfilled that day. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, was fulfilled that day as Jesus went into Jerusalem on this Colt, a colt that had never been ridden, that had never been used. It, it was to be a, an object that would transport something that was holy. In this case, the Davidic king himself, Jesus. The scripture magnified, the scripture verified 
that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, let me back up just a moment. You all know that when you look at different texts and different even gospels, that they were written to different kinds of folks. For example, Matthew. Matthew was written to a bunch of folks who came from primarily Jewish backgrounds. They were Hebrew in their ethnicity. So Matthew, when he's writing to them, he's writing to a group of people that are very familiar with the scripture. They're very familiar with the Old Testament. They are expected, they know what the idea of Messiah is. So when Matthew is writing this, he's trying to confirm to them Jesus is the Messiah by showing them, just as we looked at, that Jesus fulfilled the scripture. So the scripture had maintained that Jesus was the Messiah. But notice the way the crowd responded. The crowd recognized the Messiahship of Jesus as well. The scripture says that as Jesus came in to Jerusalem, that they laid their clothes, that they laid their clothes on the road, that they cut down branches from the tree, and they spread them on the road as well. Don't miss this. This is not just some pilgrim coming into Jerusalem that's being welcomed. Some people have tried to maintain that, that it was just the idea that his, he was coming as a pilgrim up to this great time of worship and celebration, and that's the reason they were just welcoming him. No, 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 no. You can tell in their voices, you can tell in their actions that they believe that Jesus must be the Davidic king, that he must be the son of David, that he must be the Messiah. They spread their clothes out upon the road. They spread the branches, the greenery on the road in order to welcome him. This was the way of inviting in to the city, the king. Back in the Old Testament, as Jehu had been anointed the king of Israel, we are told that they went and they spread their clothes out to welcome him. We're told later on in the intertestamental period between Malachi and Matthew, we're told that there was one of these brothers, the Maccabean brothers, that was welcomed in to Jerusalem as he rode in and they welcomed him with a bunch of greenery because they, they expected him to be a king-like figure. So this had been used throughout history to welcome in the king. Here this was an identification of Jesus as the Messiah. Perhaps the raising of, of Lazarus, perhaps all the miracles had finally gotten out and word had spread and people had recognized there was something spe special about Jesus of Nazareth. They expected him, they knew him to be the Messiah. Look at the words that they used. Hosanna to the son of David. The word Hosanna, what does it mean? You sang it a moment ago. Five of you sang it a moment ago. <laughs> Hosanna, it can, especially in the New Testament, it come to mean this idea of like praise or hallelujah itself. It, it, was, it was this idea of worship before God, Hosanna. In the Old Testament, especially in the original language, you would see that it would mean something like save us. Save us. Save us, the son of David. Save, bring salvation 
to us. And you can tell how this idea of save us had worked its way into the idea of hallelujah and praise. Because salvation always brings praise. Amen. If you and I have been saved, we ought to be motivated to praise him. And this is what he says. He says, save us. The crowd calls out, save us. Praise to you. The son of David. In those words, they are recognizing that he is the king, that he is the promised one. Later on, the religious leaders, in chapter 21, like verse 15 and 16, the religious leaders will come and say, Jesus, did you hear what they were saying? Did did you hear that they were referring to you as the son of David? Aren't you going to do something? Aren't you going to stop them from making that proclamation? See, sometimes I have heard our critics say that Jesus never claimed to be divine or he never claimed to be the Messiah. He never claimed to be some of these things that we purport him to be. The religious leaders recognized that he was making these claims. They recognized it. They recognized that he was claiming some type of equivalency with the Father. And that is the reason they reacted as they did so often, especially during the Passion Week. This week, if you read some of the passages, I want you to note how the religious leaders responded. Because they knew that Jesus was putting himself on the same level as God himself. They recognized that. It's the reason they claimed that he was promoting blasphemy. The crowd recognized his Messiahship. They cried out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118, 26. They recognized that he was the one that was bearing the name, the personality of Yahweh God. They recognized as they said, he is the son of David. Again, I told you, Matthew is all about trying to promote to those that come from a Jewish background that Jesus is the Messiah. You read through Matthew, you'll see it over and over. It just drips with this idea that, that Jesus is the Davidic king. Ten times the son of David will be used in the gospel of Matthew to speak of Jesus. It actually begins, Matthew's gospel, chapter 1, verse 1 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Note that in the very first verse, what Matthew was saying to those that were coming from a Jewish background is, hey, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, he is the one that is the son of David, the Davidic king, and he is the son of Abraham. We trace his lineage all the way back. Matthew records it for us. And then over and over, whether it's the idea that he was born in Bethlehem, as Matthew will record, or whether he'll just simply carry that title, even from Gentiles, that he's the son of David. Over and over, his Messiahship will be confirmed. But this is what I really want you to see this morning. As much as Matthew demonstrates the Messiahship of Jesus and that he was the Davidic king, the crowd misunderstood Jesus' intentions. The crowd misunderstood the character of the Messiahship and the character of the king. When they're crying out, Hosanna to the son of David, when they're calling for salvation 
understand that they are calling for like a political intervention. They're calling for political salvation. They assumed he was a political king. I want you to hear this this morning. They assumed he was a political king, but in reality, Jesus was a spiritual king. That should set in for a moment in our hearts and lives. The people that were crying out, this crowd, they wanted a military leader. They wanted somebody that would come in and would lead them in a way. He'd be the warrior king like David. And he would restore the territorial integrity of the nation. That he would somehow come upon the scene and he would wipe out the Romans. That's what they wanted. They had seen it happen before in their lives where these types of kings had led them into battle. And this is what they longed for again. But don't you love the way Jesus enters into Jerusalem? Certainly, he enters in on a colt in order to fulfill Scripture. But notice the humility. He's not coming in on a steed. He's not coming in on some type of wonderful warrior type of horse. Now, I grew up in North Mississippi. You've heard that now a time or two. Um, And uh, (coughs) a few weeks ago, I kind of shared with you about how, like, we had a lot of livestock. We we had cattle. My my grandparents lived right next door. They had a dairy. And then, uh, of course, my mom loved cattle as well. And um, every now and then she would have some cows and different things. And so I was kind of there with all the different types of animals. And and as I shared with you a few Sunday nights ago, that... uh, we did buy a horse one time, one time, but my dad was deathly afraid of that horse. And I, I don't know why he just didn't like horses. So you know what he would do is he would like get the horse to come as close to the fence as possible. We would feed the horse and he would like, he, he would like put a bridle on the horse there across the fence. Now think about that. Cause once we got the bridle on, we could control him, Right. You, you don't know what I'm talking about? Does this not seem comical to you a little bit? I mean, I couldn't laugh in front of my daddy because it would make him mad and I would get uh, <clears throat> reminded that I don't laugh at my dad. But, but I'm like, what? It's a horse, you know, and here you are. You're like trying to bride. I mean, you're trying to do all that. I mean, a horse, you know, obviously it can be intimidating to certain people. It can be. I'm not sure a colt would be intimidating. I'm not sure that a colt coming in on... If if Jesus would have come in on this great steed, this great horse, I mean, he would have demonstrated, he would have looked, let's say this, he would have looked the part of a king. He would have looked the part of a warrior. And certainly Jesus could have done something like that, but Jesus intentionally chose to ride in this colt. To fulfill scripture, but also to show us the humility in which he was coming into Jerusalem. Because he was not coming to be a political king. He was not coming to wipe the Romans off the face of the earth and restore the old nation of Israel. He was not doing that. Look at his interaction with Pilate later on. Pilate will say, Are you a king? Are you the king of the Jews? 
Jesus will be very restrained in his response. There will be a moment where he'll say, well, it is as you say. Whatever you say must be. But also, he will remind Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world. He's not come for political power. This is not a political kingdom. This is a spiritual kingdom that Jesus had come to establish. That is the reason Pilate will find this man innocent. Because he recognizes, get this, even the Roman governor of Judea, of Jerusalem itself, recognizes that Jesus has not come as a political threat because his kingdom is not a political kingdom. If only those in the crowd could have understood that. And hopefully and prayerfully at some point after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, they came to recognize that. Jesus was not a political king. Later on, Luke, I told you all of them, kind of writing with their slants. Luke is a, I think he's the only Gentile writer of the New Testament. He writes to Gentiles. And in the Gospel of Luke, in the book of Acts in particular, he shows us time and time again how the Gentile rulers and leaders always found Christians innocent of the charges that, that were brought against them. Now think of that. Luke just writes to remind us that the believers are not a threat to the political system or the structure because we're not about the political kingdom. But those in the crowd, they wanted a political king. It hit me while I was overseas a few weeks ago. The crowd will call for the release of an insurrectionist, a military leader, a zealot named Barabbas. Now there's some back and forth, whether it was the same crowd or elements of the same crowd, but all I know is that within a week, you have gone from a crowd that esteems Jesus as the Messiah to a crowd that is calling for his death and the release of Barabbas. Think of this. They would rather have a political insurrectionist. Barabbas. Can you break down the name? In the Hebrew, it means son of the father. And what they're saying is, give us the real son of the father. He's the one that acts like we want. He's the one that will lead us. We want a military type of leader. We don't want this Messiah that's about the spiritual kingdom. We want somebody that will do something about the Romans. Give us the son of the father, not the son of David. Folks, our Jesus is not a political king. Let me say, Jesus is above all kings. Every political, every governmental, he's above it all. And he is not, he is, he is not one to settle just for a political kingship. He is a spiritual king. You and I, we need to be reminded we're not about a political kingdom. Did you hear me? 
We're not about political kingdoms. Now, I believe we ought to be involved in the processes. I believe we ought to be salt and light in the world. But if you and I are dependent upon political parties and political agendas, we have missed the power and the work of God's kingdom itself. If our faith is in any type of political system or political party, we have missed the idea of what Jesus has come for. Jesus came as the Messiah, but he didn't come for political reasons to bring down empires. He came to bring down the one. He came to bring down Satan himself and the evil empire that tries to work against us. And he came to bring us life. Hey, I am so thankful that I don't look just to a political king. I look to a spiritual king that has the ability and the power to bring forgiveness and life to me. I am so proud that he is not based upon the political systems of this world. But they misunderstood him. They assumed also that he was a national king. That he was just going to be the king of Israel. I mean, that's what they wanted, the restoration of the nation. They wanted to see Israel itself restored to its prominence. They, they wanted the prominence that David and especially Solomon had brought. But our Jesus is not just a national king. He is a universal king. He is a global king. Hey, Zechariah chapter 9 That was quoted earlier. Chapter 9 verse 9. It was quoted about Jesus riding the colt into Jerusalem. Look in verse 10. I'll just read it to you okay. The very next verse. After the one that was fulfilled. The very next verse said. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. Or Ephraim. And the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace. To the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Did you hear what Zechariah said? Zechariah said that the rule of this king would be more than the territory of Israel. This king would bring peace to the nations themselves. Old Testament. An individual writing with a Jewish flavor and thinking about Jewish life. He says that this king, this Davidic king that's going to come, he is going to be more than national. He is going to be universal. He's going to be global. Again, I stop and say, thanks be to him. Thanks be to him. That our God, that our king... That our Savior was not limited by ethnic boundaries. But he extended his rule over all nations and peoples. Because you see the kingdom of God as we understand it appropriately is the reign of God in our hearts and lives. And there are no geographical boundaries. There are no ethnic boundaries. Our Jesus is the king over all our hearts and lives. And his kingdom is made up by those of us who have truly given ourselves to him in faith 
and in trust. Aren't you proud that the gospel made it out of Jerusalem? Aren't you grateful that the good news was able to cross a big pond, an ocean? Aren't you proud that the gospel was able to find us right here in Reston, Louisiana? Because he wasn't just a national king. He was a universal king. He's a global king. And that is the reason as well we take his message to the nations. That's the reason this morning we have two individuals in South Asia. That's the reason that earlier this morning in their time, they were in a church or in a house setting, preaching and sharing the gospel. Because our God, our King, is for all nations. Hey, they assumed he was a temporal king. One for the moment. You know, we're going to get a king. He's going to come in. He's going to lead us against the Romans. Defeat the Romans. We'll have independence for our nation again. And then we'll move on to the next king. They assumed he was a temporal king. But you and I know this. He is an eternal king. He's not a king for the moment. He is a king for eternity itself. And he is superior to all. Next week we'll talk more about this. But hey, he was superior even to David. Even the great king. I told you a few weeks ago that when I went to Israel... I was preparing myself to see David's name everywhere. There's like a David hotel in every city, right? King David. Some people will say, where'd you stay? Well, I, usually I can take a guess and say, well, King David Hotel, because there's one in every place you go. But David, so revered, so looked up to. But he was a man for the moment. He was a man that would lead the nation, and then he would pass away. But our Jesus... He was superior to David. Over in Matthew 22, the Pharisees will gather together and they'll say to Jesus, or Jesus will ask them, that is, who do you think, or what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they'll say, well, the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David. That's what they'll say. And then Jesus will say to them, if that's the case, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? What Jesus is saying is, don't you know that I've always been David's Lord? That I'm superior to him. That I am superior. I am the king for eternity. God promised David an eternal dynasty. What God shows us in Jesus is that Jesus is the eternal king. There's a difference. Dynasty means there's just a king after king after king, and it's going to be there for eternity. For Jesus, he's just the king for all eternity. You're not going to need another one, you're not going to have him replaced on the throne. He will always, forever be our 
king. The crowd misunderstood. But today, thanks to his word, we can see the Messiah as he was meant to be. And we can place our faith in him and our trust. Because he has done something within us to build a spiritual kingdom around us. He has done something within us to show us that he is the universal and that he is the eternal king. And one day, because of our faith and our trust in him, we will know that Jesus will make another triumphal entry. Except next time it won't be in such a humble state on a colt. Next time there will be true triumph in the entry. May I just read it to you? It's pretty good, right? Do you mind if I just, are you with me? You awake this morning? You better get awake. You better get ready. Because Jesus is coming. And that is a triumphal entry that is described for us in Revelation. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his, high, on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That is the triumphal entry that Jesus himself will make. Because he is the son of David. Have you bowed yourself to him? Have you given your life to him? Surrendered yourself fully? I pray this morning you would if you haven't. I pray you would come in faith and trust him. And believe in who he is. Let's pray together. <coughs> Father, we come to you. And Lord, during this moment, even before we take of your supper, before we think of how humbly you came to die on the cross for us. Lord, how you just, Lord, how you move past so many different expectations. Lord, that you demonstrate to us a greater opportunity in spirit. Father, I pray that you would settle our minds and our hearts, that you would help us reflect upon the true identity of your kingship, who you are. Thank you this morning that we are a saved people because of what you have done. Thank you that you went and you violated the expectations of those in that crowd so that you could show us the greater expectations of what you want to do in our lives. 
Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this place who are saved, that you would just allow us to recommit and rededicate ourselves to your kingship. God, I pray today for those who are lost in this place, that they had come and they had just experienced salvation and forgiveness and life. God, I pray we just prepare ourselves because we believe you're coming back one day. We pray it now in Jesus' name.